Good morning. The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If, it, if I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Here ends the reading. I'm going to uh, share a few thoughts now about uh, the reading from 1 Corinthians 13, which is our allocated reading for today. And I have to confess, my first thought when I saw the passage for today was to paraphrase the bowl of petunias in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guides to the Galaxy, oh no, not again. But then I did a bit of digging back into my files and I discovered that whilst I have preached on 1 Corinthians 13 at quite a few weddings over the years, I've never actually preached on it in church, not on a Sunday service. Paul's great hymn to love, as it is often called, has become something of a cliche at weddings. It's kind of up there with Wagner's Here Comes the Bride and Mendelssohn's Wedding March. And whilst I kind of get why this should be the case, it is, after all, a lovely poem about love. I would observe that Paul writes this chapter on love 
to address precisely the opposite situation of that hoped for in most wedding ceremonies. It's a bit like choosing dear Lord and Father of Mankind as your wedding hymn. It's lovely, but do you really want to be singing forgive our foolish ways as you come to make your wedding vows? Or another analogy would be those who choose Sting's song, Every Breath You Take, for their first dance. Again, lovely tune, but basically it's a song about jealousy and someone stalking their former lover. Now, I don't mean to offend anyone who did in fact choose any of these, but they shed a bit of light on what's going on in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's hymn to love is not a statement of unwavering devotion between two people in dewy-eyed adoration of each other. Rather, it's a statement of aspiration that Paul lobs like a bomb into a community that's already tearing itself apart. The Corinthian church was about as far from a love fest as it's possible to get without actual open warfare breaking out. Unlike the marriage vow moment, Paul does not introduce this passage to affirm a love ethic that was already present in the community. Rather, he presents this passage as a way to introduce into the community an ethic that will be vital if they're to survive, the muddy waters of difference and disagreement that have been characterising their interpersonal relationships. You see, the Corinthian church was not a united or monochrome body. Its members were not all of the same kind of ilk. This was not a comfortable church gathering where people naturally fell into step with each other because they shared similar lives, values and experiences. Quite the contrary. The diversity amongst the Corinthian congregation had dissolved into discord and rivalry. Members were divided into contentious groups. They took sides, as we saw the other week, some saying they're of one teacher and some saying they're of another. This was a community fragmented rather than enriched by difference. Yet Paul remains firm that diversity is non-negotiable. God has called this community to be diverse and to get along within it. Last year, we reflected at length on diversity as part of our series on inclusion. And we discovered there that diversity is not easy. It's threatening, frustrating, and can be divisive. Living in community with people who are different to us however we define or experience our own normality, takes effort and commitment. And Paul's poetic ode to love was not written to celebrate the underlying love already accomplished in the community. It was a call to action, a call to love despite difference, a call to resist division, and create something new, a call to grow up and start behaving like adults rather than children, discovering that difference need not divide, 
and that fear need not dictate behaviour. The love hymn was not a tribute to what is, it was an intervention to instruct on what had not yet come to pass. So Paul describes the work of love in both positive and negative terms. On the positive side, Paul says that love is patient, kind and selfless. It involves truth telling, fortitude, constancy and tolerance. And in terms of what love is not, Paul says that it is not self-seeking, short-tempered and offensive. In other words, love does not hurt people. It does not damage prospects for authentic community. Love does not impede affirmation of another's humanity. Love is the only means by which believers have a chance to live fully in the knowledge and fellowship of God. All other spiritual gifts and human achievements provide but limited access to that reality. And so Paul offers them this poem to love to shape their behaviour, to help them grow up and to grow into Christ. They need to put childish, argumentative, destructive ways behind them and start behaving like mature adults, which isn't always easy, as any of us who have done any psychotherapy will know. There is a little hurt and damaged child in each of us, crying out and demanding attention, as neglected children often do. But if we allow the child within to determine our behaviour, or at the other extreme, if we just continue to neglect it, then we will never fully grow into the integrated adults that Christ is calling us to be. The stages of life and the stages of faith that accompany them are difficult to negotiate and many of us get stuck in some level of immaturity rather than progressing to full maturity before Christ. James Fowler wrote about what he called the six stages of faith in a book published in 1981, and I've often found myself reflecting on these and where my faith journey sits in these stages. And by way of concluding this morning, I want to share a summary of Fowler's six stages of faith development with the invitation for each of us to consider how they ring true for us in terms of our own faith journey. So I'm going to try now and share a screen and then access my files. I don't know whether this will work or not. I'm now sharing the screen and there's Fowler's six stages of faith. Now I hope you're going to be able to continue to see those as I go back to my notes. Could somebody on the panel uh, just let me know whether what you're seeing now is the six stages of faith or whether you're seeing my uh, personal notes. Somebody chip in and let me know. I'm seeing the six stages of faith, Simon. Great, that's fantastic, marvellous. The technology has worked at least on that one. So I'm just going to talk through these briefly. Um, so stage one is where fantasy and reality often get mixed together. However, during this stage, our most basic ideas about God are usually picked up from our parents and 
or uh, our society. So this is where, you know, we're children and we, we don't really have a, the critical faculty to tell the difference between, I don't know, Father Christmas and God. Uh, we just believe what we're told. Stage two, this one typically uh, we develop into when we become school age and we start to understand the world in more uh, school age and we start to understand the world in more logical ways. And uh, people who are at stage two um, have some critical faculties which they can apply to their faith. You know, maybe we can begin to differentiate between fantasy stories such as Father Christmas and stories that we're going to continue to believe in around God. But people at stage two still generally accept the stories told to them by their faith community and tend to understand them in quite literal ways. I would note that some people remain at this stage throughout adulthood. I would locate your average fundamentalist believer here. I just read it in the Bible and I believe it. It's literally true. That's a stage two faith. Stage three is, is a stage that most people move on to as teenagers. And at this point, life has grown to include several different social circles. And there's a need to pull it all together. We're not just in a community of faith anymore. We're now mixing our community of faith with other competing demands, uh, telling us different things we might believe. And when this happens, a person usually adopts some sort of all-encompassing belief system. However, at this stage, people tend to have a hard time seeing outside their box and they don't recognize necessarily that they are actually inside a belief system. So at this stage, authority is usually placed in individuals or groups that represent one's beliefs. So we know there are other belief systems out there, but we, we've chosen our one and we're gonna stick with it. And you know, what the minister says is what I'm gonna believe. This is the stage most people remain at for most of their lives. Stage four is the tough stage. And those who go to stage four often begin this actually in younger adulthood, when people start seeing outside of their own box and realizing the merit of other faith boxes that exist. Stage four is where people begin to critically examine their own beliefs. And to do so on their own, there's independence of thought. Stage four is where people often become disillusioned with their former faith. Ironically, people who are at stage three will usually think that people who have moved on to stage four have actually become backsliders, when in reality, they have moved forwards. During stage four, many people decide that questioning everything is too scary and they retreat back to the safety of stage three. Or alternatively, they may be unable to reconcile their doubts with their faith, and so they abandon faith altogether. A smaller group, though, press on through to the goals that can be found beyond stage four, and this is where we get to stage five. This is the point when people begin to realise the limits of logic and start to accept the paradoxes of life. They begin to see life as a mystery and often return to sacred stories and symbols, but this time without being stuck in a theological box. 
people at stage five become comfortable with not knowing all the answers and not needing to know them. And in a sense, people at stage five actually experience true faith rather than the watered down version they constructed earlier in life. And finally, stage six, few reach this stage. And those who do live their lives to the full in the service of others without any real worries or doubts. So do you recognize something of your own faith journey here? Can you see the stages you've come through? Can you see where you are in your personal growth? I'd just like to state that I'm offering this with no judgment about where you may be now. All of us experience each of these stages. And so I want to ground this in the love ethic that we spoke about earlier. This is not an excuse for some of us to look at others and go, I'm more mature than they are, or in envy, I wish I was where they were. God loves each of us equally and calls us to love one another equally. But God also calls us to be open to growth. As Paul puts it, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. Even in the darkest moments, love gives hope. Love compels us to fight against coronavirus, alongside our sisters and brothers living in poverty. Love compels us to stand together in prayer with our neighbours near and far. Love compels us to give and act as one. Now, as it is clear that our futures are bound together more tightly than ever before, and we pray in our individual homes, around the nation and around the world, we are united as one family. So let us pause and find a moment of peace as we lift up our hearts together in prayer. And I'm using prayers from Christian Aid. First of all, a prayer for medical workers. Restoring and healing God. Thank you for medical workers everywhere. Embodying sacrificial love in these challenging times. Putting the welfare of others before their own. Staying away from their family and loved ones. Comforting the concerned and bereaved. Reassuring the anxious and vulnerable. Working to heal and restore people who are ill. Be their guide, strength, wisdom, and hope. 
We pray for those in authority to do right by them, for protective, proper protective equipment to be provided and for their dedication to be met with much gratitude and appreciation when they return home exhausted. And we pray for medical workers around the world where resources and protective equipment are always in short supply, not only now, but always. May these extraordinary times lead to deep and necessary changes in how our world works, resulting in a genuine effort to address the profound injustice of life expectancy being determined by geography to awaken us all to the reality of how connected we all are and to work together to create the community and world we all want to be a part of. And now a prayer for ourselves. God of heaven and earth, in these times of isolation, apart from loved ones, distant from friends, away from neighbours. Thank you that there is nothing in all of creation, not even coronavirus, that is able to separate us from your love. And may your love that never fails continue to be shared through the kindness of strangers, looking out for each other, for neighbours near and far all recognising our shared vulnerability. Each of us grateful for every breath and willing everyone to know the gift of a full and healthy life. Keep us all in your care. Amen. <laughs>